music mama, I got bad news, bad moods every day, brand new, tattoos on my face, sad dude. Hey everybody, welcome to the Ashes to Awesome podcast, Rising to Recovery. My name is Chuck LaFlange, and thank you for joining me while we take a mostly serious look at the realities of addiction in rising in recovery. This episode is brought to you by Together We Can, where Canada recovers from addiction. That's twcrecoverylife.org. Hi, listeners. So I'm in studio with Scott from Vancouver, BC. Is that accurate, Scott? Are you from Vancouver? Uh, Abbotsford, Abbotsford, close, close enough. enough. <laughs> it's all Vancouver to me, right? So uh, welcome to the show. How are you doing today, man? Doing fantastic, man. Grateful to be alive. Good stuff. So our, our mutual friend, Ryan Bathgate, the captain there from, from Wednesdays, told me that you got quite the story to tell. So I reached out and here we are. Why don't we just get right into it, man? Start with first time you tried a substance. Let's go from there. <laughs> uh, yeah. Hello, everybody. My name is Scotty H. I'm a survivor of addiction. And, uh, and, that, and that's how I start my story. Um, you know, I think it's important. I think we were just touching base on this is, uh, you know, how, how many times I've, I've, I've changed the position of how I tell my story based on what my knowledge is and, and how my growth has come in my life. And, um, you know, the first substance I ever craved was attention and love and validation and recognition. And, uh, I think it's important for me to identify that from the very beginning that, that I, I, that I absolutely was an addict to attention and validation and recognition and a sense of belonging far, far before I even touched substances. And, you know, the funny thing is, is that when, when substances actually came into my life, I wasn't as, I guess, lured in by them. Um, you know, I, I was an athlete most of my life. Um, you know, typical upbringing, um, nothing special. You know, I didn't have a, 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 a terrible, terrible family life. I had a terrible social life, you know, uh, <laughs> bullied incredibly. Um, you know, throughout school, I was always an athlete, you know, and, and, you know, part of, part of my, my, the, the, the sense of belonging and seeking validation and recognition and stuff came because I, I'd moved around a lot. So I always had to kind of adjust and become the chameleon in order to try to fit in. Right. Yeah. 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 That's funny. We, we get that a lot in, in different, in different interviews, that, that theme right there, moving schools, moving cities, moving towns, whatever. That's a common theme amongst uh, people in their, in their young life when they, you know, addicts anyway. Right. So continue. Oh, Sorry so, yeah. No, absolutely. Um, yeah, you know, like, uh, you know, I, 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 I first started drinking. I, I had a couple drinks when I was young, like 13. I, I spent a lot of time away in the summertime. My mom worked full time. I spent a lot of time with family. And, uh, my mom got me on a fishing boat when I was young, got introduced to, uh, to somebody in my life who became a really powerful presence and a really huge influence. Uh, who ultimately that was, I, I you know, I, for the story's sake, I call him my brother. Um, and, uh, and he introduced me to alcohol and, uh, and you know, the first time I got, I, I, I touched alcohol, I got really stupid drunk <laughs> and, 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 and quite literally, uh, you know, he hands me a bunch of money and I, we were in Port Hardy and he's like, you know, go, go into the liquor store and, and pick out what you want. And the, you know, he's like 13 years old. I walk into this liquor store and I grab, you know, I, I see this big jug of, of ruby red wine in a green jug. And I'm thinking, oh, it's like five bucks. I'm like, that's a good deal. <laughs> right. <laughs> Needless to say, after that weekend, I don't think I ever drank red wine again. No. Right. 
I wish I could. Yeah. I wish that the same could have happened as a result of my other substances use. Right. But right. So, the irony of that, right? Do, do you remember how it made you feel at that time? Uh, Right. projectile vomiting all over the no i don't I, I don't mean that part i mean the getting drunk part like do, do you remember yeah yeah absolutely i mean it it was it's i i get the same i got the same feeling as i got the same time i tried heroin i got that sense of warm fuzzy belongingness right that that sense of like it was like a hug dr gabber mate talks about like that 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 warm hug right and uh and i and i really connected with that yeah. But do but you feel the, you had a sense of self enough to know that this was like a connection you were making or was it you were just at the time? I mean, you're pretty young, right? So it's, it's kind of hard to, to be that self introspective at that age. But I, I always like to ask that of people just to kind of get a sense of their mindset in their first substance try. So because I was so desperate in my, in my longing for validation, recognition and attention, I was willing to do what everyone else was doing. And, and that's basically, that was the motivating factor. If I can, if I, if I'm being honest, like it, it, the motivating factor in it all was because all the cool people were doing it. So I was doing it too, right? My mom was an alcoholic. I mean, I grew up with it. I, I, I mean, I was sipping beers when I was a kid, but I really wasn't, it really didn't grab onto me, right? My real, if I, if, if you want to get into the meat and potatoes of it, the first time I ever tried cocaine, that was it. It was over. It's another familiar, familiar line right. stories right there. Right. <laughs> line. The, the, the drinking and stuff over the years was, was just here and there throughout high school. You know, I was like a high level athlete. So I really, I, I didn't smoke. I didn't smoke weed. Um, which is weird. You know, I absolutely hated both of those, you know, drank occasionally on my 16th birthday, got drunk, uh, graduation, got drunk, you know, but the cocaine that that's and how old were you when you tried that the first time? Uh, I was 19. Yeah. Yeah. So I was right in the same range actually. Yeah. 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 I remember where I was. I remember what I was doing. I was remember who I was with. And I remember the feeling of just like all of a sudden arriving, like I had arrived and this was something I wanted more of. And that was powder coke. Right. Yep. Yeah. 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 That's funny. It's for me, it was underwhelming the first time I tried it. I was like, Oh, okay. Well, I was expecting to be so much more than this, right? But as I find out over the years, being ADHD the way I am, there's a, <laughs> some self-medication thing there that's happening, right? So, right. Um, don't get me wrong. I liked it, but it wasn't, it wasn't expected to be out of the movies where all of a sudden I'm a, a whatever, you know how it is. Anyway, this isn't my story. <laughs> so, um, okay. So now you tried cocaine. Where's it go from there, man? Oh, God. You know, um, I got so entrenched so quickly. It grabbed a hold of me like, like nothing else had ever grabbed a hold of me in my entire life. And I was out of control very quickly. I was living in Parksville at the time. I was, uh, selling Coke. Um, you know, I had never tried it. Uh, my, you know, the people I was selling for. Uh, told me to stay away from it. Uh, you know, the warnings were, were, were very true. I should have listened to them. But, uh, yeah, I was living in Parkville. I was selling Coke. Uh, you know, I was living the life. I was playing the role. You know, all of that ego stuff came very quickly after high school. And I started hanging out with certain groups who were influenced, right? I very gravitated quickly away from sports. You know, I, I was a team 
Team BC Select. I was, you know, had chances to play uh, with Team Canada for basketball. I was training at UVic, and but but the gravitation towards the use of of narcotics and partying and the lure and the lust of of like identity and ego and and validation and all, all like bar star stuff, right? Yeah. Like I was a drug dealer, and all of my friends were gangs, gang guys, and drug dealer guys, and I was a somebody. And man, that. I'll tell you, if there was a substance more intoxicating than any other actual physical substance, that that sin energy of lust and greed and desire, oh man. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, um, I moved back to Victoria and uh, again, the lifestyle of, of, of what I was involved in and who I was involved with. And uh, it just quickly controlled my life. And uh, before you know it, I was, uh, you know, I was packing guns and, uh, and involved in some pretty heavy up high up stuff and, and, you know, involved in uh, trafficking. And I mean, Jesus, I've been charged with, you know, possession and counterfeiting and assault and, you know, all of that unraveled really quickly for me. I got arrested for aggravated assault in, uh, in 1999. And, uh, and, you know, I went to, I ended up with my first federal sentence in, in March, April, May of 20, 2000. Yeah, 2000, I guess. Holy smokes. 2023. <laughs> 23 years ago, my first federal sentence for aggravated assault, conspiracy to traffic, trafficking, um, assault with a weapon, assault causing bodily harm. What you get caught with? I, <sighs> I attacked a cab driver. I, uh, I, uh, I got into a beef with somebody at the bar one night and I was, I was craving. And you know what? This is the thing, right? Like, this is, this is a message that I, I, I hope that that people out there who don't know what addiction does to people understand that, that this, this energy and this force, I call it the devil, you know, this entity that takes control of somebody's actions and behaviors and basically, you know, forces them in a sense. And don't get me wrong. I'm, I take 100% responsibility for the choices that I've made. You know, there's a saying in the rooms of recovery that we're not responsible for our addiction, but we are responsible for our recovery, right? Yep. And, you know, some of the things that I've done truly are against all the nature that was inside of me as a human being. And, you know, I, uh, I attacked this guy. I was trying to rob him and he, he fought back. And as a result of that, um, there were some injuries, you know, I, I don't want to get into too, too much detail with that, but you know, he, he got hurt and, um, and I left a trail of evidence all the way to my house. And shortly, uh, a week later, you know, the cops came knocking and, you know, I ended up in, in, in jail and, you know, you'd think that that would be enough, right? Uh, like, <laughs> no, you wouldn't. That's no. the insanity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If you've been around for a minute, you wouldn't think that. But yeah, yeah that's what the normal person might think. But right, like normal people, normal. they 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 get caught, you know, pulled over one time, had a couple drinks of wine. Like the, even the scare is like, oh my god, I got pulled over by the police yeah, for having right. two glasses of wine. I'll never do that again, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I got catapulted into a world that I had no business being in. Were you, I'm sorry, how old were you when you got uh, pinched and did your fed bit? There? 21. Had you done time before that? Nope. So you went right from zero to, to fed time? 
zero to I did you know, I did six six seven months in pretrial. Um, and, uh, I mean, there's, there's so much I'm, I'm skipping over here, Chuck, like so, so, so much, right? Like so much of my childhood, my being, you know, all the things that I pointed to as reasons why I justified who I was and what I was doing, right? Like that, like I I shared before we started this is that victim mentality, right? I didn't know how to get out of it because I was so, it was so easy to blame the world, blame my babysitter for molesting me, blame my, 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 my teacher for assault, like all these things, blaming my mom not being there, my dad leaving me when I was seven. It was like all the things that were reasons. And I, and tr- I'm, I'm milk. Can I swear? I like, I milked yeah, the yeah. fuck out of it. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, going into my sentencing and shit like that. Like, you know, yeah. I ended up with five years and yeah, I went. I went straight into fed, fed system and so, you want to so talk for the about, listeners oh, sake, oh, yeah. just, just for yeah. the listeners sake. So the fed system, cause I appreciate most of you or a lot of you anyway, aren't really familiar with that side of the tracks. Um, federal time is anything two years or more. So, you know, two years plus a day. Yeah. Two years plus a day. And, um, that's, that's the big boys. That's the penitentiaries, right? Uh, other than that, you're in the provincial system, which is, well, you know, some can argue it's even more violent in the provincial sometimes, but the the feds where you get the lifers and the and the long timers, and it's a it's a yeah. hard way to be. So go ahead. Yeah. It's a University of Hard Knocks, man, and yeah, it's, it it's, yeah. uh, it's 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 ba- it's battleground, right? You're you're fu- you you want to talk about you know a, a squawking ground or peacocks for for you know who's the biggest roost in in the hen type thing? It's it's a you know killer be killed type of environment, right? And you know going in being being I mean, not necessarily as young as some of the guys that I've ran into over the years of being in there that came in and, and, you know, were just young, like just babies, you know, they murdered somebody or did something like stupid and they ended up in there. But like, you know, I ended up in there and the first thing I did obviously was did what I needed to do to survive. Uh, you know, it played the role. I, you know, I hung out with the people that I knew that could protect me and, and I did everything that I was told to do because I was so desperate in that same sense, carrying on what I had done for so many years was just, I needed to fit in. I needed to belong. I needed to be validated. I needed to be recognized. And it was all out of fear based, obviously, even worse perpetuated by the fact that I was now in a federal and federal institution with, like you said, you know, uh, lifers and guys who had committed murder and rape and, and like severely violent assaults. Right. So how was that? How was that for you then? I mean, I'll ask those questions because I imagine to a listener, they must be wondering when you're that, and it isn't even so much about your age. I mean, it's, it's your, your, your break into the penal system. So when you walk into that penitentiary at that age, scary, what, what was, you know, scared shitless. Yeah. But, but I couldn't let you see that, right? Of course not. Of course not. So it was chin up, you know, you know, uh, shoulders back, you know, getting tattoos within the first six months of being there, you know, hitting the gym, hitting the punching bag. So, you know, you're hitting the punching bag as hard as you can just to, it's all peacocking, man. Like that's all it is. It's just, it's just one giant game of who can, who can puff up the biggest, right? And, you know, hoping that nobody you know you don't step on anybody's toes you're not disrespectful and and you know you're not you're not called you're not basically called on on your your puffing up right and and unfortunately it doesn't work at some point in time you're going to cross somebody who's who's pushing you and who needs you know is going to test you and call you out and and it's you know show up or be kill or be killed right yeah it is yeah it is right so can can i ask you that without 
pushing too hard? Was, was there, you know, can you give me an example of something? And it, I gen- typically don't ask these questions in a conversation one-on-one with somebody because I, I you know, I kind of know what the life is, but I think for the listener sitting at home, it, it, they've got to be wondering, right? So, and that, that's why I ask, right? But, um, an example of a fight or, or somebody getting up in your face or, you know, something scary that happened. You know? <clears throat> so, um, yeah, man, holy smoke. So I was, uh, again, inside, you know, um, selling drugs and, um, I was, uh, I had, uh, so one of the, uh, one of the, the local gangs that were up and coming inside the, inside the jail were getting dope off of me and, uh, and they were running up quite a bill and I went in to try to collect and, and make like a bit of a presence and, you know, flex on, on one of the guys and, the following morning, as soon as the, 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 the gates cracked, I had three of these guys in my cell with blades, you know, um, coming at me. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, one of them came at me and, um, and actually what, what really saved me was my buddy across the hall see, got, was getting up to get his methadone. And, uh, cause what they did at that time, they, the, what they did is they cracked the gates on the unit. So we were all down a range, right? And at the end of the range was, was, was steel gates. So we, they, they cracked the fir- the gates first thing in the morning, but we weren't, we couldn't leave the range, right? So we could go to the bathroom and grab coffee or whatnot on the range, right? So he was getting up to do his methadone and he, he seen one of them, the last one go in my room and, uh, and, and slide the door shut and went over and grabbed one of my other buddies. And so, you know, as this one guy starts coming at me, both of them kind of slid the door open and they were both bigger guys. And these guys were just little guys. And, um, you know, I, I got, I got a couple shots in this guy he took a slice at me and, uh, and, and, you know, it kind of ended right there. Okay. Um, Lucky. just because, Lucky. Yeah. Oh, big time, big yeah. time. Yeah. And just, just because now the numbers are a little different, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, and, and, you know, so for, for anybody listening, for the guys that are listening out there and, and understand the politics of, of, of institutions and so that you, you probably know what's coming next, right? Like, uh, I ended up in solitary confinement for about four and a half months because my, I, I, I say this quote unquote, my life was in danger because all of a sudden the tides had turned and their little, little plot to take me out had been thwarted. Um, so now, now it was like, well, what's nice. So they, what, you know, they kite me out, which is a, a term used that they, they, they drop information to the man that, that, you know, if I'm not removed, that something bad's going to happen to me. Right. So I fought that for about five and a half months, six months in, in solitary and, uh, ended up with a transfer to another institution. And during that time, man, that, you know, I, I actually really thrived from that point on. I kind of adjusted what I was doing and, and didn't really get involved in, in too much of the, the bullshit following my, my, my transfer. I, I transferred to a, 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 a more medium security institution and, uh, and, you know, did really well. I started actually getting back down to the roots of who I really was, but still that, that lost little boy trying to still be somebody, right? Like that, that was, a, that was a, a, a constant for many, many, many years, right? And, um, so, you know, to kind of fast forward the story, I spent two and a half years in, in another institution. I was, I ended up being uh, the sports coordinator and community liaison. And I set up a whole bunch of like sporting events, uh, for the institution. Did, did a lot of like positive things. I, I, I was still using, that's the funny thing. You know, I went into jail doing coke and drinking. I got introduced to heroin, crack, 
needles all in all in jail and and like how how crazy is that 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 those types of drugs were so readily available on a more on a more readily scale than than out on the street, right? No kidding, Jay. And I, that never ceases to amaze me. You hear these stories, and yeah, I, I never went to the Fed thing, right? I, I stopped at provincial, but um, there too, right? It's yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I was still, I was still kind of like you, you know, using. I wouldn't say I was like heavily addicted per se, um, but I was definitely using um, on a pretty constant basis. In between, obviously, you know, staying fit and working out and playing basketball and baseball and all these other things that we could do at that time in the institutions. Um, and then uh, I ended up getting transferred because uh, I got caught up in some institutional politics with gambling and uh, and drugs as it got later on into my sentence. I originally started off with a five and a half year sentence. I, hit, I got parole a couple times or not parole, but I hit my stat release a couple times, um, you know, and, you know, every time I hit the street, uh, within a few weeks, I was drinking, uh, you know, using, hanging out with the same people, same associates, still holding on to that, that dream of being somebody, right? Being a gangster, being a drug dealer, all that stupid shit, right? So, um, yeah, man, it, you know, it, 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 un- it unraveled really quickly and I found myself in the max. Um, and, uh, and then that's when like it got really real. It it was, you want to talk about a change in dynamics of institution where you're walking freely from, from, from courtyard to courtyard to, to housing unit to housing unit to the gym and the dining hall to a maximum security facility where every single step you take is, is, is questioned and you can't go 15 feet without having to walk through another security gate, right? Um, the dynamics of, of what I had to do in order to kind of survive changed. And, uh, I found myself in a place where I had to become that much more of an aggressor and, and be violent in a sense to, to kind of like fit in and, and navigate through, right? I got into a couple beefs within my first couple weeks of being in, uh, in the max and kind of set the tone for, for what I was going to do and, and how I was going to do my time. And, um, got out, ended up getting out. I ended up getting out of there pretty much like, I would say, scot free from any kind of major injury or damage. Um, in, in 2005 on a, uh, on a release, I met who is now the mother of my daughter, fell head over heels in love. Um, but you know, here's the thing, right? Like, like I'm going to emphasize this is that what, what is very important to understand about addiction is, is that there is nothing like quite literally, there is no thing, no person, no place, no thing, no amount of money, no jewelry, no car, no wife, no kids that is powerful enough to thwart the, 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 the power of the bondage to addiction is from the disease sense of things. Cunning, right? I, the way I explain it to people sometimes, Scott, is is to say your kids, your parents, your family, all the good stuff is in another room of the house entirely. You can't say I chose this over that because it wasn't a, it, there wasn't a choice to make. 
right? And the odd time that you pull your head out of your ass long enough to take a look in that room, the guilt and the shame puts you right back out, right? And then now it's a snake eating its tail and you're, you know, and it's, I try and I, I think I've helped some loved ones kind of understand that, you know, no, no, she didn't pick that over her kids. She just picked that, right? Like there is nothing else, right? So, you know, and you said it right. There is just nothing. There's nothing. You said it on a podcast the other day um, that I was listening to, and you said that uh, what people need to understand is that recovery is 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 everything. If without recovery, you have nothing, right? And that's that's to the essence of those who are in recovery. It has to be first and foremost. For me, it's God in recovery, right? And, and that's what I had an absence of for the majority of my life. I didn't have recovery. I didn't have a program. I didn't have God. I knew kind of God was there because of the things that I'd been through. Jesus, I, I mean, I haven't even touched base on, on the stabbings and the shootings and the beatings yet. You know, like I knew God was there and it existed. There's no reason why I should be here, let alone be alive, walking, talking, cognitively functioning, right? But, you know, to, to go back to kind of like where I was at and, you know, this is where the real chaos started to happen in my life. Okay. So you know, well, I haven't got started yet. Okay. Oh, no. <laughs> no, not even close. Oh, man. Um, you know, I have, it's funny because it, during my recovery process, I, I like, I don't know if you'll ever meet somebody who did the kind of work that I've done. I, I, I went day by day from the very beginning and I wrote journals and I wrote my story down and, you know, year by year and highlighting all the things and all the, you know, all the stuff that had happened to me. And it's, it is absolutely remarkable, you know, that, uh, you know, my tagline for my Diamond Life Academy is, is that believe in the I'm possible and that no, it doesn't matter what's happened to you or where you've been or what, what you've been through, that anything is possible if you're able to transcend that, that pain and that, that trauma, right? But, you know, I, everything that I had as, as, as a young person and kind of navigating my way through the world as, bro as a broken, I brought it with me and I brought it into people's lives. And this woman that I met who is just, a, was such a beautiful person, tried her absolute best to love me. And the thing is, is that all my girlfriends and all the people that had been in my life always loved me more than I loved myself. And I resented them for it. And so here you have this woman who is young and she's beautiful and we're, we're falling in love. I just got out of the pen. You know, I'm still using my grandmother had just died and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like still reeling from that. I'm wired to heroin. I got out wired to heroin this time. So and, and. Yeah, yeah, right. Like I left the federal institution, a maximum institution wired to heroin. Like, yeah, right. like it's yeah. completely opposite of what these, what these facilities and like, I won't even get into the justice system, <laughs> my thoughts on it, but you know, it, yeah, you know, and I have responsibility in that, you know, like I, I obviously where I was at and what I was doing with my life, that's what I chose to do. Because again, I was still the victim and I needed to medicate myself through the monotony and the mundane insanity of the institutional life, right? And that's just what happens there, right? If it isn't heroin or, or anything, it's puked up methadone. And right now people are going like, Oh, what did he just say? Yeah. Like that's the reality of it, right? Like choked up medications and stuff. That's how desperate you become in, in, in an environment like wow. that. Right. Wow. I've never even and heard I'm that. guilty of it all. I've never even heard that. Yeah. It's gross, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, yeah, it's pretty gross. <laughs> as far as gross right? things go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's just where I was at, right? And so I got out, and this woman, we you know, again, we, you know, we 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 connected. We had this amazing bond and and this connection, and we got together. And life was going to be merry and the dream house. And I moved in with my mom, and and then we, you know, she moved up to uh, my hometown, and we got a place, and everything was hunky dory. But I was still using, and like, like as you know, as you can imagine, where this story goes, you know, eventually the unmanageability is where, you know, that admitting that my life was unmanageable, I wasn't, I was never even near any of that. My first introduction to an NA room was basically just to keep my girlfriend, right? And um, we found out she was pregnant in December of nine of 2005. And, uh, and uh, I mean, everything inside of me wanted this to happen, but I was so far gone that it, that was impossible, right? There, that the insanity of thinking that 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 alone was going to change, it, it it just made it worse, because like you just said, quite literally, you nailed it. The guilt, the shame, the all of the the, the self loathing, the resentment, the the uh, you know um, self pity, all of it, right? Like it was just just fucking weighed on me like a like a cement truck, you know, and. The reality of me being a, a productive member of, of that relationship, let alone a responsible father and someone who had integrity. No, it, I had to look this woman in the eyes and know that she, she looked at me with, with sadness and, and, and almost like a sense of like regret. And, you know, it just destroyed me. You know, she moved out. Needless to say, she moved out. Um, and, uh, you know, what did I do? What did what did More I do? What, what, what? I'm gonna guess, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what we poor, did, right? poor me, don't yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> damn straight. And, uh, oh man, but like, brother, I'll tell you something, man. Those two years of my life, I went through things that human beings should not have to go through, and let alone in this part of the world. I um. I made a very, very terrible mistake in getting involved in, in a certain organization. Um, and, uh, and I paid some severe violent consequences as a result of it. I, um, you know, I, uh, I, I found myself tied up in, in, in a trunk and, uh, driven out to a logging road and beaten within an inch of my life. And had to walk back, um, you know, no shoes, no nothing. And that was uh, because I was a liability, right? And they were t- trying to teach me a lesson. Uh, I left that environment. I ended up down in another, in, in my, in one of the other hometowns that I had was, which was Victoria. And, um, and I got set up about six, this was about four months after the original event. And then I was down in one of, one of the guys who was an associate of my, my brother at the time, um, set me up, um, to rob me and, um, uh, and tied, tied, like he set me up to do it by and, uh, and I showed up and, uh, he brought me upstairs and, and, uh, he pulled out a gun and he had his girlfriend tie me up and he tied me up for about two hours and began to basically torture me. He cut me, stabbed me 17 times tried chopping my hat, my arm off with, uh, with a hatchet. Um, you know, he beat me with a hammer 
and um, stabbed me with a butcher knife and let like <laughs> you know what I, I I mean I can I can I can genuinely laugh about this now of how insane it was I I no longer hold on to that that like that hurt and that that like sorrowful pain that I used to tell the story with but I remember at one point looking down he had me on this white couch and and i remember looking down at the pool of blood cuz he 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 put a butcher knife right through my right quad and um and and i remember looking down at the pool of blood and thinking to myself fuck this i'm ruining this couch like <laughs> like that's how crazy this was right and he was feeding me crack he was forcing me to take crack hoots so i was obviously increasing my heart rate so i was like i I don't know how or what he put a gun. He put, he was trying to get, he was trying to get information from me. He was trying to get a a safe code information from me from our safe house. And, and I, and I just kept telling him basically that, that I fuck off. You know what I mean? And, um, and he put a gun to my legs. He had me, had my arm, my legs crossed over and he put a gun to my legs. And he was like, if you ever want to fucking walk again, you're going to tell me exactly what I need to know. Now, what was crazy about this situation was, is that they were doing renovations on the apartment building that he had me in. And so they're, they were doing stucco. And so they had one of those nail guns, those nail, um, uh, staplers. So every once in a while you would hear like just faintly, like, right? Well, I guess the guy had gotten closer to the window and there was people doing like whole types of renovations. So he heard that go off and then he heard walkie talkies in the hallway. And he, he tweaked out, right? And, and, and like what was really scary, I didn't think he was going to kill me, but at one point he, he told, he turned to his girlfriend who was pregnant with their child. Funny story is my daughter and that daughter ended up being a daughter. They were, when I was in jail the following time, they were actually playing together. My, that's how crazy that story is. But anyways, he put a, he put a knife to her stomach and he was like, I can't remember exactly what he said, but he goes, if you don't do this, I'm going to gut you like a fucking fish. And, and I, at that point in time, I thought he, this, he's going to kill me. Like it, I got scared, but shortly thereafter, all that, that stuff happened and he got scared and he left. And I basically turned to the girl and said to her, if you don't untie me, I'm going to die because I was bleeding out so badly. Things were starting to get white. And I said, if I die, you're going to jail because I can't protect you if I'm dead. And, you know, and I knew the apartment was in her name. Like I knew them. Right. So I had said I I, and she untied me and I and I and I ran out. Well, I hobbled out of the apartment it was on the basement floor and i ended up passing out in the parking lot and woke up in the hospital now you want to talk about a complete failure on the medical uh in the medical world the cops i woke up in the ambulance the cops were grilling me for information and i wouldn't say anything to them so when i arrived at the hospital they basically told the doctors that i was being uncooperative i was being um difficult and that i was a drug addict and that i would to not give me any pain. So th- I spent the, the next hour being scrubbed down. The lady at the hospital, I could overhear her say, this guy looks like a blood popsicle. 
I was covered in so much blood and they scrubbed me down all my wounds with no anesthetic, no numbing, no nothing. Right. And I was freaking out. So like now I was in so much bullshit because now, oh, look, he's being erratic. He's being, you know, right. Yeah. Yeah. So they called the RCMP. I had this chick cop show up. They had security. They basically stabilized me and sent me out in a wheelchair and I'm bleeding. Like they, they basically packed, just packed the wounds. I had like scars. He cut a box cutter from the cheekbone for your, for the listeners. I'm pointing to the very top of my cheekbone to the very bottom corner of my mouth. And he did that twice, complete right through. Like I could stick my tongue through my the side of my cheek out. And that was just two of the lacerations that he had burnt me with a crack pipe, like I said, with a hatchet on my arm, you know, and he, they basically just packed the wounds and and sent me off, this RCMP officer. And I remember this this poor girl female police officer arguing with the doctors saying that I'm not taking him anywhere and they were refusing to to proceed because I was losing my shit. Like I was like, you're fucking torturing me basically. Like help me out here, right? So needless to say, what did that do, right? That just perpetuated things even exactly. worse, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. I ended up in another hospital where I almost died because I was losing so much blood. And uh, I mean, I'd already lost blood. They gave me a couple couple pints of blood at the at the one hospital and sent me to the other one and they didn't even bring me in the rcmp officer brought me into the into the emergency room and they she basically wheeled me in and they were like okay yeah just leave him here we'll get to you my girlfriend at the time showed up and uh and she stood there with me and all i remember is waking up to the basically the lights being over me and her telling me that like i basically went slumped over in the wheelchair right Ended up with a massive infection. My, 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 my wounds had got infected because I wasn't, not been taken care of properly. And, um, yeah, I had a staph infection for about three weeks, almost lost my arm and was on the streets, basically on the streets, like completely and utterly homeless on the streets with all these wounds and stuff like that, trying to fend for myself. And, um, like, needless to say, that just really even more so perpetuated all of the, the, I mean, I just survived a, a, a near death beating in one town, you know, for being a, for being a dumbass. And, uh, and here I am going through this, right? I ended up, I ended up getting, getting obviously healthy, but now I was just like, big fuck you to the world, right? Like, I didn't care about nothing at all. Like nobody wanted anything to do with me. My family didn't care. And, and why would they? I mean, like all the years that I had been through, and this is the one of the hardest things I know that I work through, work with, with families is that, you know, is, is love is supposed to be unconditional and it's tough. It's so difficult. I mean, I can tell you, man, from being on this side now, five and a half years, the, the profound respect. <laughs> appreciation and compassion that I have for not just my family, but every other family member out there in the world who has to deal with a loved one. Yeah. Right. And because it, of what as, I've as you put, know, it's become a very big part of our show now. Oh, a very big part of our show. Yeah. You guys are amazing with that. That's, uh, I, those stories, they, they, Oh, they're tough. Right. I have conversations with mothers oh, daily 
now, right? You know, it's, I've got I've got my podcast moms, my memorial moms, and I, you know, right, all sorts of them. But um, that story just doesn't get told enough. You know, we could we could do an entire we could do five days a week on that and and not tell it enough, right? You know, um, Lisa, who you know from you know the weekend ramble, and you know anyway, right? Or you know our family at least, right? Um, what a great example of that, hey, of that of a family and the love model, you know, and that like just. Just the most amazing, like strong. Oh, to the listeners, if you if you haven't listened to last Friday's episode, episode one hundred two, I believe. Oh, one hundred one, Lisa one hundred one. That's right too. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, which just kind of worked out well, you know. Her, her. Take a listen to it because that's an example of a family right there. I don't mean to interrupt your your, your going on. There, no, but, um, no, not at all. I just say uh, every time I think about the families, you know, and and of course my mother and the the insanity she put up with, right? <laughs> you know, right? You know, there's uh, a fine line, you know, and and I have to do this. I do in in my in my practice now. I do a lot of a lot of family consulting, and as you mentioned, Lisa's family. I you know have have worked with some of the family members there regarding with consulting and dealing with, and there is a fine line between loving and supporting somebody to be healthy and loving somebody and supporting them to stay sick and the enabling side of things where that fear is. Now I didn't have that. I didn't have my, my family just like, Nope, want nothing to do with you. You're gone. You're cut off. So I never had that enabling side of things. Right. But you know, a lot of families kind of, sorry to sidebar on this, but a lot of families there, that fear of, if I don't do this, he's going or she's going to die. Yeah. And any self-respecting addict knows how to manipulate that. Oh, oh fuck, buddy. Like, you know, like, <laughs> oh, just through and through. You know, I, I where I live now, um, the, uh, the the owner of the house, her son is is in active addiction. And I just watched it over the weekend here happen right in front of me, right, for the money. And I was just like, oh, man, like, you know. Didn't I just buy you guys your methadone this month? Like, didn't I just do that last week? What are you doing? You know, you know it's, it's hard to watch sometimes, but, yeah, you know, yeah, we are good at it. Addicts are wonderful at the manipulation. Oh, 100%. So, so, the yeah. masters of manipulation, yeah, right? right. For, for the hardcore days of my, my addiction, um, my family and I, we just, I didn't really speak to anybody in the family, right? So, I, like yourself, I didn't. You know, the, the enabling thing and all that wasn't there, right? But anyway, where were we, Scott? <laughs> right? Yeah. right? <laughs> I tend to do that sometimes. <laughs> no, it's okay. Back to the adventure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, um, I uh, I ended up, so back to the, uh, the story of where I was in my life and uh, what I was doing. I ended up. I ended up robbing a bank. <laughs> so, oh, shit. yeah, that right? works. That, 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 that's the dumbest one to try, right? Like, wait a second, I, did you just go there? Yeah, yeah right. right? Yeah. Like, where did that come from? That, that okay. happens early on, and you figure out. <laughs> By this point, in your story, you should somebody should have told you that was shit was not a good idea, right? Yeah, right. I uh, I got myself into a, a situation where I, I I hurt somebody pretty badly over some bullshit territory stuff, and I had their bosses come and grip me up in a taxi, and uh, and basically put, give me a twenty four hour um, time limit to uh, and and this is where they they brought my family into this, and and so they basically gave me a a twenty four hour time limit to come up with this money. Otherwise they were going to go after my family. Now my family has never known this. I mean, I've lost my mom already, um, you know, years ago, but, um, you know, I, uh, 
they didn't know this. And I mean, they were serious enough that I, that I, I, I wasn't going to call their bluff. Well, and by this and point so, in the game, you, you know no. the difference, right? So, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and that's the thing is, is, it's what, it was funny because, well, I mean, funny, funny to me as I, I laugh at this. It's like, you know, where I was at in my life, we were driving down in this cab and they come grip me up, all, like four of them. And one of them I actually happened to knew really well. I did time with them and, you know, we laughed, we laughed about it afterwards and we we're like, how the hell did you get involved in this? And like, I don't know, dude, they don't know that I know you this well, but let's just try to figure this out. And he actually got out of the cab with me and, and, and tried to help me figure it out. But I ended up losing him at some point, but they, they were threatening me. And I, I that's what I literally said. I said, look, this can go one of two ways. You're, I mean, are you going to kill me? You want your money? Or like, you know, you pull over this car and like, just let me out and I'll figure it out and I'll get a hold of you in 24 hours. And that's where the, the whole like, okay, well, we've done the research on you. Because I mean, after everything that I've been through, I mean, what are you going to do? Are you going to beat me again? Like, I've been through this a few times already. You're not scaring me, right? And that's how absent I was from 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 it. Like, I was just so removed from that threat. I was like non-existent anymore, you know? And, um, I mean, I just didn't even care. I mean, I, I didn't want to live anymore. I was, I was so, so defeated where I was in my life. And I was so like, I just didn't want to live anymore. So I just didn't even care. I ended up, ended up, I, I, when I, I've given my, this speech many times. I've, I spoke to universities for years and I, I tell this as, as like, it's the funniest thing in the world, but, I went to go rob a bank and, uh, and the first night I went to go rob this bank, I, I, I wanted to go obviously get high first, right? Like (laughs) I gotta, I gotta get, I gotta get, I gotta get high for this stuff, right? (laughs) So I ended up in this park and, uh, and I ended up in this tree. I often hung out in this tree. This tree was very like protected from everybody. It was facing the water and I ended up in this tree and I was so, so strung out for so many days. I couldn't stay awake and I kept dropping my drugs to the point where eventually I, I jumped down out of this tree and the water during this waterway had made its way back up to its level point. So I now found myself about buried three feet in mud and in, in about four feet of water. And then I fell asleep there up against this tree and uh and and ended up standing there probably for a good four or five hours for my sake and drug myself out of this mud eventually when I realized what was going on and fell asleep in the park to getting hit over the head with a hockey stick from somebody who I guess I fell asleep in their camp I don't know but so there goes that idea of, of robbing the bank ended up in town and found out that these guys were looking for me and, uh, and just literally went from finding out they were, they were, uh, looking for me. Uh, I got changed. Uh, somebody on the street down there who was a friend of mine, I say friend, uh, with quotes in the air because of, uh, ended up what he ended up doing, but he wrote me a note and I walked into the bank in Nova Scotia. And uh, I handed the note and, you know, this was so against who I was as a person, but I was so desperate at that point and so scared that uh, I just did it anyways. And I, I demanded $5,000 from the teller. I told her, you know, I, I the note said that I would har- that I would hurt somebody, but I wouldn't, I would never have done that. If she would have even said no, I probably would have ran out of there. You know, I was so scared and that just was, was not who I was at that, at that point in time. No matter how strung out I was, I was never... 
I was never violent unnecessarily, right? Like this is, this might be hard for, for some viewers to hit. And don't get me wrong. I've done some pretty brutal things. I mean, which is part of the reason why it perpetuated for so long. A lot of addicts, me included, have this unbearable sense and feeling of, of never being forgiven or unforgivable, right? I hear it all the time from people just saying like, you know, and that's why my message is so powerful because it's, it's like for the life that I have and the love that I have from God and, and, and the, just the, the success that I've had is like, you can and, and will be forgiven for anything that you do. You just have to be willing to do the work in order to get through it. Right. And, you know, I, I, I've, I've done some terrible things, but I've never harmed anybody. Like I've never been violent. Well, no, not true. Not true because there was the, the, the cab driver. Um, with the exception of that there, I, yeah, there's a tough one too. Maybe we can delete that after. <laughs> yeah, too late now. I, I, that's not what I mean. I mean, yeah, anyways, I'm sticking my foot in my mouth. Um, I think you get what I'm kind of saying. It just wasn't in my nature, right? Like where I was at in that time of life, I was just not the type of person to just, just hurt somebody, um, you know, out of malicious intent or contempt. Like just not the person that I was. Like even, even the, I will say this and I will go back to the cab driver. There was never an intention to harm him. There was not. Uh, you know, the fight ensued as a result of him trying to defend himself. And that's where the injuries came from. I never went and just, just, just up and attacked the guy for no reason. Right. So, but you know, I, I walked into this bank, the lady, you know, I, I think I got scared halfway through when she was counting the money out and I, uh, I, I, I grabbed the money and I ran and, you know, and, and you know what, it's funny because as I'll share in my story a little bit later about when God, God came to me and, uh, and, and gave me my spiritual awakening. It's like all the things that had happened in my lifetime, all of the events and all the times that I had been, you know, almost killed and, and it near miss deaths. And, you know, I got stabbed in the heart in, in Nanaimo was by somebody wearing a brass knuckle punch and it had a three inch spike on it. And he punched me in the chest with this spike that went through my chest plate and just narrowly missed my heart by like millimeters. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I haven't even gotten into the overdoses and stuff yet, which is just incredible. Right. But I, I ended up robbing this bank. I left the bank. I ran out down the alleyway, changed clothes and was walking through the school, which was about a half a kilometer or so away. And I guess I had court that morning <laughs> and I had missed court. I had a, a promise to appear that I had, I'd gotten about a month before for possession of a couple, couple grams of crack. And one of the cops who I had consistently had issues with just happened to be leaving a lunch with his wife when they got the call for the bank robbery and he was on his mountain bike because he was a mountain bike cop coming through the school and noticed me walking through the school and he pulled up and he was like, Hey, Olshoff, you have a warrant out for your arrest. <laughs> like no fucking way, right? Like what are the chances of that? Right. No kidding, no kidding. God made it very clear to me in my spiritual awakening that that was him, you know, interjecting where he needed to be interjected in, in hopes of getting me back on track. Right. So 
I didn't have the money on me. I actually tried to do a solid for my bro. And, um, it w- I had pretty much admitted it right away. Like, like, uh, we, the cop pulled up. He was like, you know, put your hands behind your back. And, and my buddy had the backpack with the money in it. And, um, I had been, I had trying to pull all attention towards me because I was like trying not to get him in trouble. And, uh, he was like, what are you guys doing here? And, uh, I was like, well, I said, I just robbed the, the bank. And he looked at me and he was like, ah, yeah, right. And I'm like, no, seriously, like I, I, I just robbed that bank. Right. And, uh, <clears throat> and he was like, okay. Well, he called for a paddy wagon and my, my buddy was about to walk away and he had no warrants. And, uh, and then the cop was like, well, what's in the bag? And sure enough, they found the money. Well, this dumbass had put money in his pocket. So instead of just the bag, which I could have claimed as being him holding on to it, he got himself money. So, you know, I had given a confession. This is how desperate I was, is I got arrested on Friday the 13th, October, Friday the 13th, 2007. And I had pled, I had admitted to it, signed a confession, pleaded guilty, was in court on Monday, did a 30-month deal for a pen bet. Because I was like, once you hit the pen, you just, provincial time is just, you just don't do provincial time anymore. And I was on the bus to the pen Wednesday morning. That's how badly I just wanted things to be, to be different, right? I'd sobered up in cells. Um, brutally, holy smokes. They didn't have Suboxone or Methadone for, for guys like me back then. And I ended up sobering up in cells and, and I remember throwing up on the plane over to, uh, to, to Iraq. Which is the regional reception, reception and assessment center. And, uh, and I, you know, it took me about good, good, good two and a half weeks to, to, to detox. And you know what? I'll tell you something. I, I was ready then, but here I am in jail again. And I, I, brother, I'll tell you this. And I literally had this conversation with a friend of mine the other day, who's a police officer here in Surrey. We've, we've really bonded over the last few weeks. And, um, he's, he's really into helping people and, and reintegration and stuff. We've been talking about my organization and stuff. And, um, what you have to do when you're in jail in order to survive is in direct conflict with what you have to do to change your life. It is impossible, next to impossible, for you to do what is absolutely necessary to truly change your life in there when you have to do what you have to do to survive. And those people who do do that don't have a very good time at all. No, they don't. Um, and, and that's what was the difficult thing, right? I, I, I ended up at uh, one of the, one of the medium institutions again. And, uh, and yeah, man, within, within a week of being in that institution, no matter how badly I wanted to stay clean and sober, the first person that offered me heroin, it was like the insanity came back. It was like, well, I can do just a, just a little bit. Like I can do a little couple, couple dragons, you know, it'll be different this time, you know, like (laughs) just the stupid, just the stupid shit that we tell ourselves. Right. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Right. Oh, it'll, it'll be fun. It'll be, you know, just make the time go by a little bit. Right. And, but I mean, it, it doesn't take long when you have no tools to defend yourself against the enemy. You, you, it doesn't take long before that obsession comes in. And that's part of the disease factor of it. Right. 
is that the obsession, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, and then once the obsession starts and you start, then you have the phenomenon of craving, right? And then, and then it's just, it takes off from there, right? And then the spiritual malady, which is another component of, of the 12 steps. And it all makes sense. Now that I'm on this side of it, all of it makes sense, right? God was absolutely there in my life, but I wasn't there for God, right? And, and he made that very clear, you know, and, uh, and now this is where the institutional stuff really gets interesting. So I, I found myself, and I'd been in this institution before for a short period of time. I, you know, I, I have an education. I am articulate. I do have, you know, leadership abilities and skills and training and stuff like that and got myself involved in the, uh, the institutional, um, uh, what would you say, the, the institutional politics. So, you know, the president of the institution and make committee and things like that. I got involved and we were delegating for some, for some rights and, f- freedoms right Uh, because you know we're so hard done by in there (laughs) and uh they were this was the time that they were taking out the institutional smoking stuff so there was a lot of a lot of tension between the guards and the inmates and um one of we were we had we had set up a, a dope drop to come in for the institutional social and uh and the guards caught wind of it and the this all happened so quickly. It, we had, we had a, a, a few set of approved visitors that were, that were on their way in and somebody's grandmother and child who had nothing to do with the situation ended up getting searched and it got down into the population. And like I said, the tensions were already high. Everybody was on, on walking on eggshells and everybody knew it, right? There was, there was hostility between the guards and, and the inmates. There was hostility between the inmates. You know, smoking was being removed. Uh, you know, there was just overall just tension. Anyways, there was a, a, a riot that, that happened. And, um, I found myself smack dab in the middle of this riot. And, um, and needless to say, so what ended up happening was, is that they broke into healthcare. Now I was outside dur- during the institutional meltdown. Um, I was in stu- I, I you know, what ultimately became a murder investigation because of what happened during that riot. Um, but I was involved. I, I had, you know, uh, I was involved with the gym and the recreation stuff, right? And the institution, the, the people who took, took the ride on took my keys from me at some point during the day. Um, they were supposed to be taking out like, you know, hockey nets and, and all that kind of stuff. And, um, they ended up not giving. So I had to, to answer to that why I had given my keys away because obviously all the equipment we use, but they got into healthcare and they stole methadone. So to make a really long story short, I ended up overdosing on methadone and I was unresponsive. Apparently I got, um, bear maced and, and like drug and beaten because I was being unresponsive to the, uh, the ERT team and the military that had, that had got called into the, to the institution because of the riot. And what, what happened? I don't remember any of this. I just woke up five days later in the hospital. They had Narcaned me nine times. Now, here is the insanity and the crazy coolness of this story is that I was the first one to be shipped out. It was an actual, actually a guard, a female officer 
in the institution who I knew well, who recognized me when she was out doing overseeing the groups of inmates that were outside of their cells and no and watched what they were doing to me because they drug me away from a group. My buddy was holding on to me because I went unconscious just before all the, the military came in. And he told this guard that I was unconscious. So so when they came up and they were trying to disperse people, um, she had interjected the kind of like the beating and found me unresponsive. So they worked on me for quite a while before the ambulances showed up. They brought me to the and on the way they narcan me seven times because I was, I kept going in and out and like flat, literally flatlining and they were hitting me so much because what they had stole was pure methadone. Yeah. So usually this stuff gets mixed 10 parts to one, right? Yeah. Yeah. Got, yeah. 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 Methadone is brutally lethal. When, yeah. Right. So I arrived at the hospital at, I believe the, if my records were like one around 1 15 AM and they worked on me for 45 minutes. The story that I got at the end of this when I woke up five days later was how unbelievably lucky it was that I was alive because they called time of death, pushed me into a cart because the guards were like, basically, fuck him, he's dead. We've got 17 more guys that are coming in here in ambulances. They had to call ambulances from Langley. That That's how many people had to be shit rushed to the hospital. And they pushed me into the corner and this nurse who had been working on me with this doctor she said, she's like, I don't know what happened or why or, or where, where, where it came from, but I just got this, this sense that you were, it wasn't your time yet and that we needed to give you another chance. And she convinced the doctor to give me one more chance and they gave me one more shot of Narcan and, and I get, I, they hit me with the paddles or something or did compressions or something and I, I came through, right? Wow. Wow. You know what? We're going to take a quick break here for a public service announcement, and we'll be right back. So, And now for a quick PSA brought to you by Revolution Recovery, helping men recover and become their best selves through support and treatment. They've been there, and they understand. Hi, listeners. This is Lena. I'm part of the Ashes to Awesome team and co-hosted on Episodes 76 and 67. Do you carry Narcan, also known as Naloxone? If not, perhaps you should. The kits are not only compact and easy to use, they are free at all harm reduction centers and a lot of pharmacies. By carrying one of these kits, you could save the life of somebody who loves and that is loved. I get that most of you never plan on being around opioid use, but there's no telling when it could be around you. I can't think of a good reason not to have it, and if you're not sure where to find it for free, send us an email at ashes2awesomepodcast at gmail.com with Narcan in the subject line. We'll do the legwork for you and find it for free in your area. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. Hey guys, so I decided to split this into two episodes, and this was kind of the perfect time to do it. I'm releasing them at the same time, so you can just skip on over to the next episode, and no problem. Thanks for listening. <laughs> 